So then I would like to introduce um, Ajahn Amaro and Joseph Bobro Roshi. Um, uh, Ajahn Amaro trained in Thailand with Ajahn Chah and with Ajahn Sumedho at Amaravati Buddhist Monastery in England. He's the co-abbot of Abhayagiri Buddhist Monastery, a branch monastery of the forest meditation tradition, and that's in Mendocino County. And he resides there in a small monastic community. Ajahn Amaro has led retreats with teachers from both the Mahayana and the Vajrayana traditions and has written a, a book, Small Boat, Great Mountain, in which he reflects on the interfaces of Buddhist traditions today. Among many other things, he tells his uh, usual and illimitable anecdotes in that book, too. It's a lot of fun to read. Joseph Bobro Roshi is a Zen master and the founder of Deep Streams Institute. He's a Dharma successor of Robert Aitken Roshi in the Diamond Sangha lineage of Zen. Joseph also studied with Yamada Kon Roshi of Sanbo Kiyodan with headquarters in Kamakura, Japan. In the early 1980s, he lived and studied with Thich Nhat Hanh in Plum Village, where he co-translated Tay's Guide to Walking Meditation. Joseph is also a clinical psychologist, and he writes on Zen and the interplay of Buddhism and Western psychology. Uh, the, the institute he founded, Deep Streams Institute's mission is practice, study, and service. It offers Zen Buddhist practice, including koan study, provides interdisciplinary study of Buddhism, Western psychology, the creative arts, and contemporary science. And it also serves the community in San Francisco and the Bay Area through the Coming Home Project, a healing community program for Iraq veterans and their families. So I'll let uh, Ajahn Amaro and Joseph Bobro Roshi continue with the day for us. Thank you. Thank you very much for helping make this day possible to the, to the Sati Center and to Insight Meditation Center and uh, to all of you for coming. Um, we thought uh, this morning that uh, we'd each speak for approximately an hour and then have some questions and then break for lunch at around noon. I want to invite you not to be shy when you ask questions. There's a long tradition in, in all the schools of Buddhism of um, lively dialogue. And um, although uh, we're Buddhists, we can um, also enjoy some of our differences, some of our diversity. And so uh, please feel free to, uh, to join in the, the dialogue after we've both spoken. Non-duality. We say in Zen, not two, not even one. We can even say not three, not two, not even one. What would the three be? Well, you can really take your pick, but I think of it as the observer the observed and the observation. In Buddhism, we cultivate the capacity to observe very closely in a very nuanced and powerful way. And yet, um, 
there may be more to Buddhism, more to life, more to the Dharma than simply the process of observation, which by its very nature has uh, an element of subject and object. So why not one? By one uh, here, uh, the title of our day refers to uh, unity. Unity is a marvelous thing, equality, oneness, but uh, it doesn't quite capture, uh, at least the way that I think about non-duality, although it's certainly a, a critical element. So we say not two, not even one. Uh, so today uh, we'll be exploring non-duality and um, the ideas we have and how those ideas can open terrain for us to explore and they can also narrow the terrain. Even ideas about non-duality, depending on how they're used, can be an obstacle to experiencing non-duality. Um, I've taught before with Ajahn Amro, and I know that most of you know him. Uh, I very much look forward to uh, a freewheeling, uh, personal, uh, lively day of uh, stories, teachings, and dialogue. So without further ado, Ajahn Amro. Lovely to see um, many familiar faces and to be here at uh, IMC again. Also, uh, obviously, uh, a few unfamiliar faces meeting for the first time. And uh, hopefully, uh, through the course of the day, uh, many of the things that uh, are spoken of or referred to will help to catalyze um, a, uh, a quality of, uh, of peace, a quality of of understanding equality of, of liberation. This is the, and it's important in a way to bear in mind that's the, the uh, motivation for the whole thing. You know, the, all of this Buddhism business <laughs> is to uh, to realize these fundamental uh, possibilities, these qualities uh, that are here before us uh, uh, via the human condition, and so that uh, uh, hopefully that uh, the things that uh, uh, Roshi uh, Joseph and I say during the, the course of the day will not give rise to more confusion, more uh, kind of burdenness or more doubt or complication. Obviously, when there's a lot of words around, things can get a little bit clogged. <laughs> and I, I tend to, myself, I have a, a, a tendency towards uh, prolificity, <laughs> abundance, overabundance of verbiage. So, uh, I... Uh, I uh, don't intend to make the day a kind of blizzard of, of syllables that uh, people feel you know, snowed under, but uh, it can happen, so um, uh, that's not the intention. The intention is to help dispel doubt and, and, uh, and uh, misunderstanding uh, or, or lack of understanding and to arrive at a quality of, of uh, clarity and peacefulness. Oh, when, uh, when Joe suggested the title uh, or theme for the day, um, it immediately evoked a couple of different uh, things, particularly the, the verses of the third Zen patriarch, um, Seng Tsang, where he, uh, he says, when, when doubts arise, simply uh, 
remember, not, uh, simply think not to. And, um, and so that, uh, that phrase, I, I realized, oh yeah, that's, that's a familiar phrase in the Zen world. They, they use that a lot. And then the second part, not even one. I thought, yeah, that, well, that's, that's a very good way of, of pointing to it because even when the mind is thinking in terms of, of letting go of, of dualities, of, say, the uh, division between separate objects or division between subject and object, a dissolution of that, then just as, as uh, Joe was saying, you're left with this feeling of, of one. Um, that can be what remains. But uh, um, in, in the last few months, uh, I've been um, uh, doing a little bit of exploring of the, the world of mathematics, and, uh, which is one of my promises. And I came across a reference to the fact that uh, this great uh, work of mathematical philosophy, the Principia Mathematica, that was written by Alfred North Whitehead and Bertrand Russell back in the early part of the 20th century, they took 315 pages to explain the number one. <laughs> I thought, well, that's a story in itself. You know. <laughs> Just to explain what one means. So I thought, right, well, it's, so it's really important that we let go of one. Because <laughs> if we start to hold it as a real thing, we end up with 315 pages at least of complicated... Uh, intricate logic and that uh, it's in a way that the, the, the whole principle of, of Buddha Dharma and, and the methodologies of the path uh, over and over again throughout the, the Buddhist teachings both in the, the southern and the northern traditions you have the, the Buddha pointing out the fact that the path is conditioned, it's formed, it's a created thing but that which it's leading to is the unconditioned, the unformed, the uncreated and this is a mysterious thing that how can you know if the, if the, the way to the to the um, the goal is is a conditioned thing how can the goal be unconditioned um, and so that in, uh, we use forms and descriptions we use words concepts ideas but the point of them is not to come up with the perfect concept the perfect idea or you end up like Russell and Whitehead. With like, 315 page book just on the number one um, but you it's a it's a springboard or a stepping off point it's a a, a, a mode of um, uh, of practice a, a way of, of working uh, towards realizing that which is beyond form that which is beyond language which never has been bound by structures or, or the born and, and the dying and these are uh, maybe sort of mysterious or strange ways, to, uh, unusual ways for us to speak. But this is really the, the essence of, of the Buddhist path. It's a, it's a very clearly designated structures and forms and ideas. But it's, uh, it's point, it's usefulness, like a key. The, the point of a key is not to be the perfect key. The point of the key is to open the door. <laughs> so, so you can either get in or get out, depending on what you need to do. Uh, you need the key. But without the key, you can't, you can't get through the door. The freedom is not possible. But the point is not the key, or even the door. The point is the freedom that comes when the, the door is, is open. So, uh, reflecting on the, on the theme, um, and the exploration of, of, of non-duality, um, I, thought, I thought that, first of all, I'd talk about the... the uh, 
offer a few teachings about the, the realm of the subject um, and the, the feeling of, of, of I because uh, as most of us experience if, if anything in the world seems real I do not, not me the per- not me Ajahn Amro but you know whoever you happen to call yourselves you know, all other sort of perceptions and, and experiences and memories and ideas might seem a bit dubious or, or, or fluid but there seems to be this this person at the middle of it who's the experience of the doer the knower the rememberer the, the actor um, right? <laughs> it's not unreasonable and not kind of presuming too much so it seems as though there's an I here who is the, the center of, of, of everything and uh, and so that um, I thought to start off with the you know, teachings that, that point to that, that domain um, and how the Buddha handled that well, there's a, a very um, uh, <coughs> significant encounter that the um, is often quoted and in a way it's where the um, the the Buddha derived his, his title from or, or the epithet of, of Buddha itself is an encounter with a, a Brahmin um, called Dona D-O-N-A. by the way this is the manuscript of a, a <laughs> hopefully forthcoming to get very dualistic for a moment um, hopefully forthcoming book this is an anthology of, of teachings mostly from the Pali canon but also from some of the uh, forest uh, uh, masters and some uh, also some uh, northern Buddhist texts the Vajra Sutra and the Shurangama Sutra and others um, that uh, Ajahn Pasna and I have been putting together so it's more like a sort of scriptural partner for the small boat Great Mountain uh, it's been forthcoming for nearly 10 years now, so it's, it's a slow birth. Uh, but anyway, um, there's a, an inc- this encounter between this Brahmin who was wandering along the, the highway and he saw in the, um, in the dust these uh, footprints, large uh, footprints with these um, strange and, and uh, impressive marks uh, there in the, in the footprint from the, from the lines on the and marks on the, on the soles of the feet and thought, wow, these are really strange feet these extraordinary with these wheel symbols <coughs> different uh, images that were pressed into the dust and he thought, wow, who do these feet belong to? what kind of a person is this? and so then he, he followed the footsteps um, through, the, uh, through the edge of the, of the road and off to the, to the forest where he, uh, he found this figure sitting under a tree and as he got close he thought, wow, who is this? saw the, the, the Buddha sitting there very uh, upright and very uh, uh, bright with a very bright countenance and radiant and incredibly peaceful I thought, wow what is that and he was just standing uh, in front of this being and then kneeled down to look closer and then the Buddha opened his eyes and, and so then uh, Dona asked him sir are you a god no Brahmin Sir, are you a, a heavenly angel? No, Brahmin. Sir, are you a spirit? No, Brahmin. Sir, are you a human being? No, Brahmin. <laughs> then, then, sir, what indeed are you? And then the Buddha, in char- characteristically um, and slightly plummy uh, Theravada language, said, Brahmin, the defilements by means of which, through my not having abandoned them, I might be a god or a heavenly angel, a deva or a spirit, 
a yaka or a human being, they have been abandoned by me, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, done away with and are no more subject to future arising. Just as a blue or red or white lotus is born in water, grows in water and stands up above the water untouched by it, so too I, who was born in the world, grew up in the world, have transcended the world, and I live untouched by the world. Remember me as one who is awakened. Buddha. So, from that, uh, that encounter, that's in the Anguttara Nikaya, the, uh, from the Book of the Fours, number 36. So that uh, um, is one of the places where we, where we derive the word Buddha um, as an epithet. So that he uh, characterized himself as rather than an, an entity or a being, uh, as uh, awakened. So he, he uses like, a, like an adjectival or a, a gerund uh, type word. You know, it's a, a, uh, 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 that there is awakenedness, there is awakening there is that, that there is uh, awakened quality, but no uh, separate being, no individual entity, no I that is the the person, the entity who is awakened. Um, so that, that's a mysterious thing. But right there in that encounter, it's pointing us to that the key insight uh, that uh, we uh, uh, use much of the meditation practice, concentration practice, insight practice. And that's the key insight that is being aimed at, is that shift from I am the meditator, I am the experiencer, to well there is awakeness, there is wakefulness, there is, there is knowing. But there's a, there's a, uh, uh, a realization that it's a presumption to say that, that, that uh, there is a knower, an entity who is the, uh, a, a separate individual who is the experiencer. So many of the, the teachings about um, subjectivity relate to that um, the feeling of, uh, of I am, and uh, what the Buddha also said um, <coughs> that the uh, being free of the uh, of the uh, perception or free of the conceit I am asmimana is the Pali term. Being free of asmimana uh, is the greatest happiness of all. And that is uh, Nibbana, here and now. So if you're interested, this whole book is about Nibbana, by the way. So if you, any of you are realizing Nirvana, and that's the aim of your life, then all it takes is to let go of the I am conceit. <laughs> that's all it takes. <laughs> Piece of cake. Huh? <laughs> but that, in, in a simple phrase, the Buddha sums it up. Being free of Asmimana, the conceit of I am, that is the greatest happiness of all, and that is Nibbana here and now. So, in that moment of a true and, and wise uh, relinquishing of that, the I am conceit, not that suddenly we evaporate or you know, there's a, a vacant cushion, um, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a change of perception, a change of attitude. So, uh, and then another passage um, that uh, I just thought to. to uh, focus the day a bit around scriptural readings if, uh, rather than just sort of impromptu um, anecdotes for a change. Um, but that can be different this afternoon. But I thought I'd do this this morning. So the, uh, the Buddha said, Bhikkhu, uh, I am is a conceiving. I am this is a conceiving. I shall be. 
is a conceiving. I shall not be is a conceiving. I shall be possessed of form is a conceiving. I shall be formless is a conceiving. Conceiving is a disease, a tumor, a barb by overcoming all conceivings because one is called a sage at peace and the sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die. They are not shaken and are not agitated for there is nothing present in them by which they might be born. Not being born, how could they age? Not aging, how could they die? Not dying, how could they be shaken? Not being shaken, how could they be agitated? So that's from a, a discourse in the middle-length uh, sayings, um, the very wonderful Datu Vibhanga Sutta, the Majjhima Nikaya Sutta number 140. So that um, that is a, the, a part of the key insights that we, we meditate that we use to. Uh, the meditation to develop is that recognition that the I am is a created feeling, it's a perception it's an extremely uh, strong habit <laughs> right? <laughs> it has a very very uh, profound pr- uh, momentum behind it the I am, this, I am becoming I'm not becoming, I, I want I, 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 I am a person I'm a human, I'm a woman, I'm a man I'm old, I'm young, I'm qualified, I'm unqualified I know what I'm talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> that the, the eye passes by without a flicker. And so that then what the Buddha is pointing to is like, let's just look at the root of this subjective feeling and, and pointing to that this is a conceiving. It's, it's, it's brought into being. It's, it's not inherently there. It's conceived. It's created. It's conditioned. And even uh, any kind of I am is under the same uh, category. And so even in, the, uh, in his uh, extremely thorough way, even if you uh, conceive yourself as being everything, like, and again, this, this sort of points to the sort of being one with everything uh, and the whole, the, the, um, the fragility of oneness as a concept or how in Buddha Dharma points beyond that feeling of... of uh, Kind of universality or oneness or being one with everything uh, language um, and this is in uh, another discourse in, uh, in the middle length discourses this is from the first one which is enormously long um, but it's also about uh, the quality of uh, self-conception it says they, uh, so I'll just read a little, bit of, a little passage from it here They perceive all as all, that's capital A, all, like everything in the universe. They perceive all as all, having perceived all as all, they conceive themselves as all. They conceive themselves in all. They conceive themselves apart from all. They conceive all to be mine. They delight in the all. Why is that? Because they've not fully understood it, I say. And then, to follow that... (laughs) They perceive Nibbāna as Nibbāna. Having perceived Nibbāna as Nibbāna, they conceive themselves as Nibbāna. They conceive themselves in Nibbāna. They conceive themselves apart from Nibbāna. They conceive Nibbāna to be mine. They delight in Nibbāna. Why is that? Because they have not fully understood it, I say. So that is pointing to any kind of I creation, uh, even around the most wholesome and noble and, and transcendent of qualities. It's like pointing to that, look, any kind of, uh, of an, uh, an experience, a doer, with it, apart from it, in it, outside of it, it's, it's always going to be erroneous. Uh, the, um, another of the, the key passages that the, the, that the Buddha uh, 
talked about um, uh, <coughs> or the, the ways of, of creating a, a sense of, of um, the, uh, the dualities that we live with um, and talking about the, the world um, and that's shifting the subject a little bit more to the, to the, uh, the realm of the object then um, the, there's a, a teaching that he gave to uh, Mahakachana which is a, um, talking about how maybe we, we take a view that um, we say everything exists or that, you know, everything is real or we take a view that everything is empty so again a, a kind of um, uh, looking at the objective world in different ways. And he said, um, Venerable uh, Kachana, uh, Mahakachana approaches the Buddha and says, Venerable Sir, it said, right view, right view. In what way, Venerable Sir, is there right view? And the Buddha replies, this world, Kachayana, for the most part, depends on the dualism of the notions of existence and non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with right understanding, there is no notion of non-existence with regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is with right understanding, there is no notion of existence with regard to the world. This world, Kachayana, is for the most part shackled by bias, clinging and insistence. But one such as this, with right view, instead of becoming engaged, instead of clinging, instead of taking a stand about myself, through such a bias, clinging, mental standpoint, adherence, and underlying tendency, such a one has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only dukkha, unsatisfactoriness arising, and what ceases is only dukkha ceasing. In this, their knowledge is independent of others. In this way, kachayana, there is right view. All exists, kachayana, this is one extreme. All does not exist, this is the other extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle way. And then he, go, he describes dependent origination. With ignorance as condition, formations come to be. With formations uh, as condition, consciousness comes to be. And so on. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. With the remainderless fading away, cessation and non-arising of ignorance, there comes the cessation of volitional formations, the cessation of of uh, volitional formations, there comes the cessation of consciousness, etc. This is the cessation of the whole mass of suffering. And a, a slightly simpler version of that comes in the Iti Uttaka, where the Buddha says, Bhikkhus held by two kinds of views, some devas and human beings hold back, some overreach, only those with vision see. And how Bhikkhus do some hold back? Some devas and human beings enjoy being, delight in being, are satisfied and rejoice in being. When the Dhamma is taught for them, to them for the cessation of being, their minds do not enter into it or acquire confidence in it or settle upon it or become resolved upon it. Thus, bhikkhus do some hold back. How bhikkhus do some overreach? Now, some are troubled, ashamed and disgusted by this, by this very same quality of being and they rejoice in the idea of non-being, asserting, Good sirs, when the body perishes at death, this self is annihilated and destroyed and does not exist anymore. This is true peace, this is excellent, this is reality. Thus, bhikkhus do some overreach. How bhikkhus do those with vision see? Herein one sees what has come to be as having come to be. Having seen it thus, one practices the course for turning away for dispassion, for the cessation of what has come to be. Thus, bhikkhus do those with vision see. 
So these are, these are different scriptural ways, and I apologize for the sort of slightly stilted language. You kind of get used to it. It, get, it develops a charm of its own over a decade or two. <laughs> but um, what these are pointing to is like the different ways that we can r- relate to the, to the world and the, the realm of the perceptions. So um, just as the Buddha is pointing to letting go of the sense of I as a subject, and then this is different ways of talking about how we relate to the the perceptual world, the world of experience, the, the world of the object. And so um, these are talking about the views of, well, things are really there, or the view that things are really not there, it's all empty, it doesn't exist, or yes, it's all real. And then the Buddha rather points out, well, uh, if you take I- either of those positions, if either of those are clung to, you're still wide of the reality. And the point is that there are these, um, uh, 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 the, there is the experience of uh, this moment. We see, we hear, we feel, there is a rising perception. We can know that. And then things cease, things come to an end. And, if you, uh, and he points in these different teachings about how we can cling to the, the feeling of being and, 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 and solidity and, and that, or we can cling to the, the fading away and cessation and, and, and uh, get a, uh, carried away with that. But if we really want to understand the nature of experience, uh, and as Joe was saying in his introduction, the... the um, the, the kind of piece in the middle, if you like, <laughs> the experiencing, just to seeing that that is a fluid process of conditionality, that uh, thought and feeling, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, wells into being, crystallizes in particular forms, uh, uh, in, a, uh, in, in regulated natural patterns, and dissolves. And that, that uh, uh, but even that, seeing that this, uh, 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 and it's in this second teaching, one sees what has come to be as having come to be. Yes, there's sight, there's sound, there's smell, there's taste, there's touch, there's these qualities that are, uh, are known, there is an, a knowing of those, but even that, just sort of uh, being the, uh, absorbed into the, the kind of that, that quality itself, is still a mistake. That, that there's pointing towards uh, the seeing of that, the knowing of that, that quality of genuine insight, vipassana, that there's a genuine uh, awareness or, or aware, awareing. <laughs> the, the quality of knowing in this moment that flow, that uh, current of, uh, of, uh, of form taking shape and, and dissolving. It's that very open, unbiased, totally unobstructed, unlocated quality of knowing that is, uh, and that being uh, embodied in this moment. That's the, the aim of these teachings. They're trying to point to the correct way to, to hold the perceptual realm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm aware that there are a lot of words being produced, but we will have time for some, some questions in due course. Now one of the ways that um, uh, uh, the Buddha talked about uh, this subject-object uh, realm and how that gets you know, cr- created and, and sustained um, is that it uses the, the, the um, image of a... and this is a, how perception was understood somewhat in, in Indian philosophy at the time. And uh, I'll read a little passage from a, a paper by a uh, fellow called uh, Richard Gombrich who is a um, professor of 
Pali and Sanskrit uh, at Oxford and <coughs> Peter, the um, former president of the Pali Tech Society. He says, In the Vedanta, uh, to be wholly and exclusively aware of Brahman was, the same, uh, uh, was at the same time to be Brahman. The origins of this idea seem to lie in a theory of sense perception in which the grasping hand supplies a dominant analogy. It takes the shape of what it apprehends. So like I pick up the cup, so the, the hand takes the shape of the cup because it's picking it up. The grasping hand supplies the dominant analogy. It takes the shape of what it apprehends. Vision was similarly explained. The eye sends out some kind of ray which takes the shape of what we see and comes back with it. Similarly thought. Thought conforms to its object. This idea is encapsulated in the term tanmayata, consisting of that that the thought of the, uh, the Gnostic or meditator becomes consubstantial with the thing realized. So it's this feeling of the, like a, the eye sends out this sort of mysterious ray, goes out and, and takes hold of the object, this person or the carpet or the cup, this thing, and then returns with it. So then the Buddha talked, used in a few, very few places in the Pali Canon this word atamayata, which means not consisting of that. So in a way it's that um, not going out into the sense world and, uh, and grabbing hold of a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a thought, or an emotion. So that we solidify things, we, we create the world of things by that going outness. I'm aware this is a, maybe a little bit of an abstruse concept. But um, we, we just, in ordinary English language, you use a term like getting lost in something, getting lost in a, getting lost in a good book, right? Or getting lost in your um, your shopping trip, or <laughs> getting lost in the internet, you know. getting caught up. We go out into to things. So this is that's that's tanmayata. The mind goes out and becomes absorbed in an object. Atamayata is that uh, non-creation of the subject-object duality. That the mind is not going out and getting absorbed. And there's a, a very beautiful expression of this by one of the great elders of Thai, uh, Thai forest tradition, uh, um, an uh, el, uh, elderly monk who passed away in his 90s recently, called Lumpur Dun. And he describes the Four Noble Truths in the same kind of model. He says, and he, re he rearranges them a little bit. He says, the mind that goes out in order to satisfy its moods is the cause of suffering. The result that comes from the mind going out in order to satisfy its moods is, is suffering, dukkha. The mind seeing the mind clearly is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And the result of the mind seeing the mind clearly is the cessation of suffering. So that, that it's that very action of going out, the apparent uh, subject going out and absorbing into the object, that, that uh, is the, the, the engine of dissociation. It's the engine of duality. Me here and the world out there chasing after it, running away from it, being oppressed by it or just bewildered by it. The engine of that is this uh, ignorant uh, construction of, of subject-object and that uh, and, and is characterized as the cause of dukkha. That very quality of alienation or dissatisfaction, dissociation. And when the mind doesn't go out, the mind knowing the mind the, uh, the true awareness of how things are, that not going outness, to coin a, a word, is uh, what helps us to, to sustain a quality of, of not suffering, 
uh, of not uh, non-alienation uh, of non uh, uh, dissatisfaction the quality of, of freedom now one of uh, one of my favorite uh, passages in the in the scriptures it also talks about this whole uh, subject-object realm is a, a, a famous encounter between the Buddha and a wanderer called Bahia. And Bahia was uh, a, a famous uh, yogi, a famous um, guru in his own right in the time of the Buddha. And he lived somewhere on the, the, um, the coast of India. And, uh, and he was under the impression that he was an enlightened master and had a whole um, large following of people. And, um, and then one night, this devata, who had been a relative of Bahia, in a previous uh, previous life, came to Bahia and says, "Well, um, oh Guruji, you seem to think that you are an enlightened being, and um, well, that, or, you, know, you might have that feeling, but actually, you are not. Not only are you not enlightened, you're not even on the path to enlightenment. <laughs> and so that you know, you're getting more and more lost as the days go by. So Bahia, um, which was a pretty impressive, rather than thinking, rather than thinking, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Said, oh, well." are there any enlightened beings in, in the, the world? And then the devata said, well, actually there are. And so if you want to seek out a genuine enlightened being, there's this, this monk called uh, Gotama, the Samana Gotama, who is truly and genuinely awakened. And he lives uh, in a monastery called the Jetavana outside of the great city of Savati. And so, to his credit, Bahia just started walking then and there. And just, okay, which, you know, okay let's go. And uh, made his way... Uh, walking non-stop to, to Savati to, uh, to meet the Buddha because uh, he was ready to lay aside his own impressions of enlightenment and his status as a guru and to go find the Buddha and say, okay, well this guy is genuinely enlightened, let's go and, let's go and learn from him. So then he made his way to, um, to the streets of Savati and then the Buddha was, uh, was out on arms round with a, a number of the monks following along behind him. So Bahia sees the Buddha and then immediately bows down before him in the street. And um, the, uh, um, the Buddha, with, with a characteristic um, uh, aplomb, says, Bahia, please get up. <laughs> We're on our arms round. This isn't the time to be uh, you know, paying your respects like this. And Bahia says, please, Venerable Sir, you, know, you understand the Dhamma um, and uh, you are totally awakened and please uh, teach me uh, what you understand. And the Buddha said, Bahia, this isn't the time or the place to be giving teachings. We're on our arms round. We're walking through the streets. And of course, being a Theravadan scripture, they do this three times over. Yeah. Bahia, you know, makes his request three times and then the Buddha says <coughs> this is not the time or the place and uh, twice and then on the third time the Buddha says well Bahia when a Tathagata is pressed up to the third time then he has to answer so <coughs> okay so then he gives Bahia this very brief teaching and so this Bahia uh, you know in in the uh, in the Buddhist scriptures different uh, ones of the nuns and monks they get titles for like uh, or actually lay people as well so like Visaka was the the, the lay woman who was uh, foremost in generosity. Upalawana was the nun who was uh, foremost in psychic powers. Um, Sariputta was the monk who was foremost in wisdom and so on. So Bahia got the, the title of being the one foremost in, in quickness of wisdom. He, got, he, had, he had the record for the, the, fast, the, the fastest enlightenment. Uh, 
he gives an arahantship in the, in the uh, sort of not to 60 in two and a half seconds. Um, so the Buddha, this is, and this is the, Buddha, the teaching that the Buddha gave him. He said, uh, in the seen there is only the seen, in the heard there is only the heard, in the sensed there is only the sensed, in the cognized there is only the cognized. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. When Bahia there is for you in the seen only the seen, in the heard only the heard, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, then Bahia there is no you in connection with that. When Bahia there is no you in connection with that, so that's like no uh, subject uh, and uh, emptying out the subject side of it, uh, there is no you there. When by here there is no you there, then by here you are neither here nor there nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. So when you can't locate yourself in the world of this, here on the subject side, or in the world of, of that, on the object side, um, and you can't find yourself in between the two either. <laughs> this by here is the end of suffering. So, um, uh, incidentally, when, when uh, Ajahn Sumedha used to quote this teaching very often, and there was one of the novices at our monastery in England years ago, in Chitta's monastery, who when he heard that the words, in the scene there is only the scene, he, he heard it S-C-E-N-E. In the scene there is only the scene, right? This is a Buddhist scene. <laughs> in the herd, yeah, like the kind of the herd of people, like the, kind of, the vulgar herd, right? The, that's right, yeah, in the scene there is only the scene, and in the herd there is the herd. We're in the scene and they are the herd, right? Yeah, yeah, right, that's it. Yeah, yeah. We've really got it, because we're totally misunderstanding the, the teaching. So, scene, S-W-E-N, herd, H-E-A-R-D. So, the, the Buddha brings it right back to that, the, the, the quality of, of experiencing. Just leaving it, there is the experiencing of seeing, hearing, uh, sensing, smelling, tasting, touching, and cognizing of the world of thought. There is just, um, and then when Bahia, you can't locate yourself uh, in the uh, you can't locate yourself in the world of this or in the world of that uh, in the in the um, uh, subject or the object or some mysterious place halfway between the two. This uh, not creating yourself anywhere, not creating a, a solidity either in the realm of the object or in the realm of the subject. Letting go of it all, that is the end of suffering. And Bahia was uh, enlightened on the spot, became an arahant then and there. Uh, and it's also interesting that when he was trying to persuade the Buddha this was a good time to give teachings, he said, he said to him, Your Venerable Sir, life is uncertain. Uh, it is unknown whether you or I might die. Please therefore give me the, te- give me the Dhamma teaching here and now. And... Uh, just after he'd realized arahantship, he was uh, run down by a runaway cow. <laughs> he was, he was uh, one of a number of people in the Pali scriptures who got, uh, got hit by a runaway cow in the narrow streets of Savati and, uh, and died, uh, expired there on the, on the street. Uh, and so that by the time that the, Bu- the Buddha didn't see this, it happened just after the, this encounter when he got back to the monastery, then word reached him. Yeah, but also, but also that uh, the wanderer by here that you gave the teaching to this morning and who became an arahant, he, he got hit by a cow and died in the, in the streets of Savati. 
we said, well, he's okay. You know, <laughs> he uh, he ended his doubts and uh, and realized uh, the the dhamma, so that um, Bahia's ending was not an unfortunate one. You know, he he completed the the task before he before he breathed his last. So even though it was um, uh, unfortunate in some respects, Bahia kind of uh, had. Uh, had done the necessary, and so that uh, he was actually right. You know, he was like, "Yeah, life is uncertain. You never know when you or I might die. So this is the time to give me the teaching." If he'd waited, they were uh, to, to catch the Dhamma talk that evening or on the next Saturday you know, at the uh, the Savati version of IMC, that uh, he would have missed it. You know, and Bahir would have would have uh, missed the teaching. There's also, even though that's a, a very brief teaching, that comes in the Udana, uh, the, the, the Buddha's inspired utterances in the first chapter of the Udana. There is a, a, a similar encounter between, the, or exchange between the Buddha and Ananda in the very wonderful and extensive teaching um, out of the Chinese tradition called the Shurangama Sutra, which is one of the key meditation texts of the, of the Chan tradition. And uh, in this, uh, the Shurangama Sutra is quite, uh, quite extensive, and it begins with uh, Ananda going on alms round um, and uh, getting in, in, uh, and getting entranced as he, he wanders through the red light district on, on, in early in the morning, and he gets entranced by a particular um, uh, song from coming from one of the houses and uh, sees this um, young woman and, and is uh, drawn into this. Um, uh, almost extremely unfortunate encounter. <laughs> and just when Ananda's really about to lose it in a very, very serious way, the Buddha kind of <laughs> intervenes and, uh, and uh, rescues him. And, and uh, So then the, the, the teaching then unfolds as this uh, investigation of the whole realm of perception because Ananda's been, been uh, caught up by this, uh, the entrancing song coming from one of the houses and uh, this uh, uh, enchantment that he's drawn by. And so the Buddha then sort of sits Ananda down and says, okay, now how did this happen? And then he starts to talk about the, the, uh, the realm of, of, of perception. And then he asks uh, Ananda, um, uh, well he says to Ananda, it's the fault of your mind and eyes that you undergo transmigration. I ask you specifically about your mind and eyes. Where are they now? So basically, where is your mind, Ananda? And then for pages and pages and pages, Ananda goes through every detail of trying to say where his mind is. It's in the, sort of in the sense organs or behind the sense organs or in the body or outside the body. And, and being a, a, a Mahayana text, it goes through extraordinarily involved detail about... Uh, the uh, meticulous uh, philosophical detail of Ananda trying to pin down exactly where his mind is and, and each time he comes up with a possibility the Buddha says, not so Ananda because if your mind was truly you know, in your body or outside your body or if it was in the eye or if it was uh, observing the eye then and so after you know, 30 or 40, 50 pages of this Ananda says, I give up Lord <laughs> please tell me where is my mind and the Buddha says uh, then the uh, the, you know, the Buddha says, you know, Ananda, you're asking the question the wrong way because your mind cannot be located in, 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 the, in the world of, of space. The mind, does, uh, the mind exists, but it does not exist confined in the world of, 
of, of space. It's not definable in terms of here or there. So, um, some of the, the, the last area of teachings I thought to, to, uh, to cover this morning and in terms of, of establishing this quality of, of, uh, of non-duality and, and uh, letting go of, of two-ness and oneness and, and, and uh, the quality of, uh, of uh, really clarifying the quality of awareness itself. Because uh, probably all of us who've done some, um, some meditation and uh, the uh, development of vipassana insight meditation in particular yeah, probably most people here not uh, assuming too much okay so when uh, when you're practicing insight meditation or, or even uh, you know, sitting zazen the shikantaza just kind of just uh, <coughs> the quality of, of resting in an awareness, the mind, you can, there can be an awareness of just the arising and passing of perceptions, that there's no sense of self or, or even other being ascribed to hearing, feeling, smelling, tasting, touching. There can be a, a, a profound clarity of uh, not a sense of, of selflessness in what we, what we think, the sounds that we hear, the feelings in the body, there's a clear, it can be a clear knowing that, yeah, this is just feeling arising and passing. This is just thinking arising and passing. Even memory, the memories that no one else knows about, just arising and passing, no sense of an owner. The whole I feeling emptied right out. Yeah? The, probably most people here have had a, at least a few moments of that. Yeah? So, and even intentions, even the motivation, that's the most, sometimes the most subtle and, and tricky area of, of establishing a feeling of, of selflessness is decision making because even if a feeling in the body or a memory is not self there certainly seems to be a person who's deciding to move the leg or, you know, or this, who's this, uh, deciding to you know, go to the shops or deciding to put the kettle on to make a cup of tea but even if those qualities of intentionality are emptied out and there's no feeling of I or, or solidity of, of, of an object there what can still remain is the fact that this is all happening here, right? There's a, 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 lo, a, location, a locatedness. Sorry to be coming up with all these ne- neologisms, <laughs> created words, but it kind of, English runs out. You know. <laughs> it's like, if you, if you look in an in a, a English Sanskrit or Pali dictionary, you, know, you go for like one word of Sanskrit and then a paragraph of English to explain it because the Indian languages have a, you know, all these things that have got uh, words for them but English doesn't really have words for it so that as a quality of, of here-ness is all a feeling that even if there's no self and no other there can be a here-ness uh, it's all happening in this particular place but there's still a, a, an obstruction and there's still a quality of, of subtle clinging that's going on there and that, so one of the most useful and profound areas of, of insight practice is that of letting go of, of locality, of, lo- of location. Is this making sense? Because it, it's, it's still an obstruction. Because, you know, as uh, uh, the Buddha is pointing out to Bahia and to Ananda, the mind is not anywhere. Awareness, three-dimensional space, only relates to the rupa khanda, the, the form khanda, the, the form aggregate. The other... Fo- the other 
the other four of the five khandhas, uh, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, place does not actually apply. The mind is not anywhere. Right? The place does not apply. And, and yet it can be such a sort of solid uh, assumption that this is all happening here and my mind is, well, it's kind of, kind of here. I mean, I know it's not really any place, but it's here. <laughs> so that then we don't realize that that solidity is being ascribed and that is too a kind of clinging. And so that um, that one of the most uh, helpful areas of letting go of of the, the dualisms and, and uh, yeah, subtle and coarse is looking at that feeling of, of here-ness. Um, there's a, uh, <coughs> also a, 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 an anecdote that I'm fond of telling which is, uh, this apparently took place in the, the, reputedly took place in the streets of Oxford. Now Oxford University, I should explain, is um, not like, a, it's not a campus university. So some, some universities in Britain have a campus, uh, <coughs> and so that all, like, like many, most American universities, like Stanford, say that you know all of the there's like a perimeter that the university has its has its colleges, and then they are all in one particular place together, and there's sort of communal buildings. Uh, Oxford University is separate colleges that are spread all over the town of Oxford. So London University, where I went, similarly, there's 44 different colleges spread all over London. So. Um, there isn't a campus, there isn't sort of one place where the university is. So the, the, the story goes that there was an American tourist stopped this professorial type on the street in Oxford, sort of, you know, with a tweed jacket with the leather elbows and the, smoke, the pipe still smoldering in the pocket, sort of bushy moustache and dishevelled hair. And, she, and this American tourist, you know, clutching her map you know, and trying to figure things out, saying, say, excuse me, sir, can you tell me where, exactly, where is the university? <laughs> and then this fellow says, Madam, the university only has metaphysical rather than actual existence. <laughs> it is not anywhere. Awareness does not apply, madam. <laughs> because the university is a concept. There are different colleges which have actual existence. But the university is just, not, there is actually no physical Oxford University. It's not a place. It's just an idea. So they, they, the colleges and the members of the colleges gather together and, the, and they, uh, they uh, uh, offer degrees and they run courses and they, they organize curricula and so on. But the, the university has no actual existence. It doesn't exist anywhere. So that that um, that is also something like we use every day, like say the, the term cyberspace. You know, where you, know, you, you, can, you can visit a website. Do you have a map reference for where you know the Abhayagiri website is? Abhayagiri Monastery is in Redwood Valley, and we can give you a you know street address and a map reference. But the website, it has no, it is not located anywhere. Awareness does not apply. So this is not a, an alien concept to us. But our conditioning as a, as a breathing, living, sort of apparently separate en- entity conditions us so strongly to think of I am in this place, this is where I am, this is where IMC is at this address, it exists here. And so here-ness is heavily conditioned. But 
developing ways to let go of that and to see, see the conditioned quality of that and open up to that is, is tremendously important. And uh, one of the, uh, the great living masters of um, Thailand at present, Ajahn Mahabua, um, he describes the, the insight that, uh, um, of his own, uh, let's see, his own enlightenment experience um, in a, <coughs> a Dhamma talk in a book called, Food, uh, called Straight from the Heart. Uh, he was doing walking meditation. It was after his teacher had passed away and he was living in, in uh, seclusion in a, in a monastery um, uh, up in the Chiang Mai area, I believe, what uh, Chigi Luang. And uh, he was doing walking meditation and suddenly he, he had this... this, uh, this it, he said it was more like hearing a voice than having a thought. But uh, what, what way the insight took shape, as he was walking along the, the, the path, was... If there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is the essence of a level of being. Say that again. If there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is the essence of a level of being. So that is like the seed of birth, the seed of, of dukkha, of, of, of separation, the seed of, of dualism. Um, if the, the knowing has a, a, a center, if we say, you know, in a way, creating hereness, that is like the, the nexus, the, the seed of, of dualism. And that was, his, uh, that was the moment of his enlightenment, kind of formed it, uh, itself in, in terms of that, that thought. And then and as he realized, oh, that's the truth, then he was able to, to release the heart from that center, centeredness. Although we think of being centered as a good thing. <laughs> Being scattered, obviously, is even worse. But <laughs> gets, gets, get, uh, from being scattered, get centered, and then let go of the center. <laughs> and so this leads on to another couple of, of key teachings, um, which are some of the last uh, I'd like to cover this morning, um, which are often quoted. Um, these also come from the Udana, the collection of the Buddha's teachings on the inspired utterances. And uh, these are um, some of the rare metaphysical teachings that the Buddha gives. Rather than just talking about the path to realizing the goal, he describes the, the he speaks of the ultimate reality directly. He says, There is the unborn, uncreated, unconditioned and unformed. If there were not, there would be no escape discerned from that which is born, created, conditioned and formed. But, since there is this unborn, uncreated, unconditioned and unformed, escape is therefore discerned from that which is born, created, conditioned and formed. Which is a, a slightly um, plummy way of saying if there was no ultimate reality, then liberation would be impossible. But because there is an ultimate reality, there is a transcendent uh, dimension of, of, uh, of reality, therefore... Uh, true liberation, true, uh, uh, true freedom, true, uh, true peace is possible. True transcendence is possible. Then the other uh, from the same group of teachings. There is that sphere, that sphere of being. Um, also this word written up on the wall there in pale, that amatadatu, 
Some of you might not have noticed. Means the deathless element. Uh, Mata uh, is death. Amata is deathless. Dhatu is element. The deathless element is a another epithet for this same uh, quality that the Buddha is referring to. It says there is that sphere where there is no earth, no water, no fire, no wind. No sphere of infinity of space, infinity of consciousness, of nothingness, or, or even of neither perception nor non-perception. Those are all the formless realms. There, there is neither this world nor the other world, neither moon nor sun. This sphere I call neither a coming nor a going nor a staying still, neither a dying nor a, re- nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no ev- evolution and no support. This, just this, is the end of Dukkha. It is neither, uh, neither a coming nor a going nor a staying still, neither a dying nor a reappearance. No basis, no evolution, no support. So that's a lot of no. <laughs> and so those are, and, and again, if we hark back to that, that passage from the Iti Bhutaka, where the Buddha says, those who delight in being, who relish being, when they hear about the, the Dharma teachings for the cessation of being, they go, ah, oh no! And they, uh, because it's, it's threatening, they, they, they hold back. But uh, I would encourage not, not being put off by the, all the sort of having our life affirming habits and being threatened by all the no sun, no moon, no coming, no going, no standing still. Um, because if you, if you consider, like in, in your, if you bring to mind a memory of your clearest moments in meditation, when the mind is, is, is uh, at its of the peak of, of uh, clarity and peacefulness, then at that moment there is a, a, a quality of, of a complete integrity uh, and you can see that in a way that, there's, that coming and going, standing still don't apply, inside, outside don't apply, past and future, present don't apply. There's no time, no self, no place. But there is there is a, an, an, a quality of, of, uh, of awareness, of, of knowing. But even to say isness doesn't quite apply. Even if, you know, that one of those Buddhist epithets is isness is our business. <laughs> even though, well, it's kind of neat, a, a neat little sort of aphorism, but actually it's not quite right either. <laughs> Neither isness nor not isness. <laughs> But if you, if you consider, you bring, it, bring to mind that, those moments of clarity and then you can see, yeah, in a way there's, there's no thing there. It's absolutely, it's absolutely no thing. But yet, it's everything. And then there's, uh, to quote the third Zen patriarchs, um, Gata again, uh, he says, in this world of suchness there is neither self nor other than self. So perhaps the word suchness or tatata in Pali is a, a um, is a, a good way to to ascribe that. Uh, you can talk about emptiness, sunyata, or tatata, and so emptiness is a way of of uh, leaning towards the, the knownness uh, of things. Suchness is a way of leaning towards yesness. But it's a um, this quality of of, uh, of awareness uh, that. Uh, in a way, its, its essence is that is a balancing of of, uh, of emptiness and suchness, of sunyata and tatata. That that is a 
as a, a, a complete no-thingness. What, there's a, a sense of, uh, of a great spaciousness, but yet it's more real than anything you've ever, know, you've ever known in your life, right? So, um, to, uh, to use these kind of teachings that we're approaching today, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to what, uh, what uh, Roshi uh, Joseph has to say um, on this, uh, is what structures and forms and, and paths we can use to, uh, and meditation methods we can use to arrive at the genuine quality, to awaken that genuine quality of, of knowing which brings the heart to that balance of, of emptiness and suchness, holding the, the yes and the no. Uh, and both are true. <laughs> uh, and yet, um, neither are, are true also. There's a, a, a mysterious um, uh, quality. There's an ambiguity in there, a mysterious quality that frustrates the hell out of the thinking mind. And even in the Buddhist times, these shaven-headed Sakyans, you can't get a straight answer out of them, however hard you try. They always answer in these uh, mysterious and tricky ways. But that's the fact of it, is that the dualistic thinking and language is always going to be frustrated. But these words and forms and ideas are pointing towards that genuine a realization of that quality that uh, that is beyond words, beyond language, and uh, and as I, again to to steal the words of the Tsingtsang, uh the way is beyond language, uh, and in it there is no yesterday, no tomorrow, no today. So I will leave my uh, presentation there for the morning and. Um, can have a little bit of a leg stretch uh, and a, a break. Unless, do we want to have any questions before that? I'm thinking just maybe just a couple minutes of questions. Okay, just uh, yeah. one or two. I think it would be just too frustrating uh, to go on without at least the opportunity for just a question or two, if you don't mind. And then after both of our presentations, there'll be more time for questions. But does anyone have a question or comment? Again, just, just one or two, please. Can, can we make... Can we make sure we use the mic? Yeah. Would you like to come up and use the mic? Or the mic, the mic is moving. Or does the mic move? Yeah. No. <clears throat> um, thank you. Um, I, I believe and relative to um, the hand taking the shape of the object it holds and the mind also doing that, if the mind is holding or looking at um, some object of the world that it desires, and it looks at itself in that moment. Does that looking change the action? Absolutely. <laughs> it's the difference between, uh, say, liking and wanting. So that uh, 
the, uh, if the, the, the mind is lost in that object, then that, say the pleasant feeling in association with that, then goes, goes towards, I want that, I got, I, I'm lacking that, and, and if I had that, then I would be complete. If, there's, if the mind is knowing itself, then, then there's a, a, a spaciousness there. There's like a, um, that, that liking is considered within the, the uh, a context of, well, I, I like that, I like the idea of that, I like the, the sight of that, I like the sound of that. Is it appropriate for me to pursue it? Do I really need that? Uh, yes, there's a liking. Is this something that is um, worthy of following or not? So there's a, uh, the whole element of, of mindfulness and wisdom is, is brought in. And so then there can be a, um, you know, we, we can't live without, without desire. You know, wanting. Is, I mean, you had to want to come here today, right? You know, so uh, it's sometimes people misinterpret all wantings or all desires as being uh, intrinsically problematic or causing a suffering. But, you know, wanting to go to the bathroom is not an unwholesome desire. <laughs> and it's, it's probably very good that we follow that desire. You know, wanting to eat or to, to breathe the next breath. Um, so it's a distinguishing between uh, that uh, what's appropriate, what fits in with, with time and place and situation. You know, if you're, if you're hungry and you brought some food with you, then it's appropriate to, to eat the food and out of kindness to the body. If it's somebody else's sandwich and you forgot to bring your own, then helping yourself. Well, we're all one. Well, we're not even one. So, you know, their sandwich, my sandwich, no sandwich, there is no sandwich. I just ate it, you know. I'm hungry. <laughs> and so then it's like, no, this is uh, sophistry driven by greed and selfishness and delusion. <laughs> and so that then wisdom will tell you, don't believe that. You know, it's their sandwich. You forgot to bring something, you know. So now you feel hungry. So it's not appropriate to follow that. So the more mindfulness and wisdom there is, and the more that we're able to see what is uh, a wholesome liking or wanting and what, what is suitable to follow and what is unsuitable to follow. And there can be an intense longing. Like you could, you know, you could really, you know, you're underwater and you really want to breathe or you really need to go to the bathroom. Or you really, are, you know, you're, you're really... Uh, in, a, in a rush because the, the, the gate's about to close and you need to get to, to there before the plane takes off. Um, but that can be held with a, with a, in an atmosphere of complete peacefulness, even though the, the feeling is very intense. That the intensity of, of feeling of wanting or, or, or attraction or, or aversion, like an extremely uncomfortable pain, it can still be agonizingly painful, but the, if there's that, if the mind is, is knowing the mind in that way, as like in the Lumpur Dun's expression, then it's absolutely not a problem. It's like, wow, this one really hurts. <laughs> that's, a, that's a doozy. It's not a problem. It's still the pain is still there. You're not just dissolving the pain, but it's absolutely not a problem, and that's the key. Is that everything? Is the recognition that everything belongs? We have one more question. One more. <clears throat> Did you have your hand up? Oh, you. I'm sorry. 
Hi. Um, thank you for your talk. I think this is related to the previous question. Um, you're talking about in the scene is only the scene and in the herd is only the herd. Um, so I just want to deconstruct that a little. Mm-hmm. Like, So there's obviously no becoming if, if you're doing that. And there's no um, clinging, no craving. Is there, is there Vedana? Is there feeling tone? It sounds like yes. It's feeling, yeah. Yeah. It's a feeling uh, in terms of the, the cycle of, or the, the, the stages of dependent origination. Um, then if, if the mindfulness and wisdom is really acute, then um, there can, you, that can really establish right at sense contact. Mostly that's too hard to, to, to distinguish between that and then the feeling of pleasant, uh, pleasant painful or neutral that comes from that. So generally, um, just uh, focusing the attention on the feeling tone, then that's where the, there can still be the quality of, of spaciousness and, and clarity, even with intensely pleasant or intensely painful feeling or, or remarkably neutral. <laughs> utterly uncompelling neutral feeling which is in a way that's the hardest of all to keep focused on but it's where that slips over between the between feeling and then tanha craving that's the bridge that in a way most uh, insight meditation is aimed at at recognizing that bridge and training the heart not to cross that like yes I like and uh, I want. Like one of the stories that uh, uh, Karen was referring to, uh, maybe in small boat, maybe I'll just uh, to recount that before we break, was um, where I get that phraseology from was when Ajahn Sumedho was a young monk um, and living at Ajahn Chah's monastery, which is an extremely austere and sort of pressurized living environment. Uh, uh, and life is very, very plain. One day, this uh, large group of, uh, of young nurse, uh, student nurses came to the monastery. And so, as a junior monk, you know, you have very, very little contact with members of the opposite sex. Similarly with the nuns, you know, you'd never see them uh, be in contact with men. And so, uh, Ajahn Sumedha was a, a, a young monk and he's the only foreigner in the monastery. So, every so often, Ajahn Shah would sort of wheel him out and have him there because he was so people were so sort of inspired by the idea that a foreigner would become a monk in this most sort of austere and, and demanding of monasteries. So anyway, he sat there for a couple of hours while Ajahn Chah was, was giving teachings to this group of, of um, the student nurses and their teachers from the nursing college. And yeah, so he's in close proximity to you know 50 or 60 you know, attractive young women. And so... And in Northeast Thailand, they're very, very straightforward about things like sexual desire and, and eating and defecating and birth and death. It's all, they live pretty close to the earth. It's a very sort of uh, earthy sensibilities they have. And so it's subjects of, 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 um, uh, of those subjects which we don't talk about <laughs> in the West, in, in polite society very much. They kind of talk about it very easily. Anyway, so after this group of... of um, uh, the students had left, then Ajahn Chah turned to Ajahn Sumedho and said, So, Sumedho, what did that do to your mind? <laughs> and then uh, the reply that he gave was, Chalk down my owl, in, in Thai, which means, I like, but I don't want. 
And Ajahn Chah was so impressed with that. And he was only like, he'd only been a monk for like two or three years at that time. Ajahn Chah was so impressed with that that for the next two or three weeks every Dhamma talk he gave was on that theme. Because so that's, the, that's the key insight. Because if you, if you react against it, say, no, I just, uh, I'm not interested, it's, it's, it's disgusting, I hate, uh, you know, sex is bad and, uh, and women I hate, and you know, I just was turning them into skeletons and seeing their kind of piles of guts and blood and pus and just pools of urine and feces. And then Ajahn Chah would like, whoa, we've got a problem here. <laughs> But if, or if on the other extreme, it's like, yeah, it's all I could do is kind of hold myself down on my on the mat, you know. So, okay, well, we got a problem here. <laughs> but he said, that's it. You know, you can say, yeah, there's a there's a magnetism there. Yeah, I'm a guy and I'm attracted to women, and there's 50 attractive young women. I haven't been you know, within 50 feet of a woman in you know, the last two years. So yeah, yeah, there's an effect. But yeah, there's an effect. But and I have no interest in following it. So it's recognizing, yeah, there's, a, there's uh, an attraction or, a, or an aversion that so I, I like or I don't like, but then it's entirely up to us whether we pick that up and follow it or not. There's no, there's no compulsion that we, we follow that because it's a recognition that I'm not lacking anything or nothing is actually burdening me, that everything is fine. In a way, it's like seeing the suchness. Of that, of that moment, even of a suchness of a desire or suchness of a fear or an aversion. It's just, yeah, it's just a texture. No big thing. So Vedana is, is in itself. Feeling, the world of feeling is completely innocent. It's when it gets into craving, clinging, becoming, then it starts to compact into the self-contraction. Anyway, time to take a break. Thank you.